The Innovators Network. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation. 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org. In partnership with Cardiovascular System Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. It is the start of Peripheral Artery Disease Awareness Month, and the most vulnerable population suffering from poor circulation known as peripheral artery disease, who are at risk of amputation, are those living in medical deserts. A medical desert describes a community lacking access to medical necessities, resulting in increased morbidity and mortality. For the PAD patient, that medical necessity is a vascular specialist. And one-third of hospitals across the U.S. have this disease known as critical limb ischemia, where the threat of is real. Here we go. Sorry about the little interruption. Hey, you know what, Kim? This is live. This is live radio. I know. Right in the middle. Hey, we can stop and start and stop and start. So <laughs> we have a live audience. So if anyone doesn't know that we are broadcasting through a platform called Zoom and yep. we allow you know people around the globe to join us via Zoom as we broadcast live on 860 AM, the answer live radio. And so with this comes the possibility that not everyone who comes on actually remains muted so (laughs) you might hear a thing or two every once in a while like our friend douglas during my favorite this was epic when we had that food show and douglas ends up in a drive-through at a fast food restaurant and we're ordering french fries for his his nephew yeah right in quotes in quotes we're talking about eating healthy food so live show (laughs) is the best that was the where I was. I think we were talking about medical deserts and peripheral yeah. artery disease awareness month. Yes, you must eat right for better artery health. Um, but also really key, you know, to the care for people with peripheral artery disease is getting them that timely, effective limb saving care. Someone who can unblock their arteries in a timely fashion and in areas known as medical deserts. You know, some of these specialists are not available in a timely, effective manner. And that is where an organization called Zivian Health possibly comes in, allowing for physicians in these medical deserts to collaborate with other specialists in other areas in order to bring some of those skill sets, even virtual or or even, you know, maybe via a Zoom video conference, you know, to these medical desert areas to help those physicians who might not be designated specialists to be able to better care for these patients. And Rafid Fadul is one of the founders of Zivian Health. He's also an intensive care pulmonologist, and he is going to be joining us in a few minutes to uh, talk more about Zivian Health and what they're doing to democratize care in a lot of these medical desert areas. <laughs> 
So, you know, that's the first time I've heard the term medical desert. When we talk about a desert foot in folks with severe peripheral arterial disease, meaning no real arteries kind of going into the foot, but medical desert, I I, kind of like that term because there's such a huge underserved population uh, of, of folks, even in where I'm in Ohio. I mean, there are companies out there, um, and I'll put a plug in for Janssen Pharmaceuticals, who are doing heat maps of um, amputation rates, African-Americans versus the rest of the population, which are typically white Americans. Uh, and and it's, it's appalling what, what some of these rates are. And I think a lot of it has to do with not only lack of awareness, but also access uh, and, and to, or actually on Thursday, I was taking care of a patient who was in our hospital, and she came from Kentucky, which is about six hours away to for for our care. And I said, how did you hear about us? And I, initially, I thought maybe it was like through you, Save My Piggies or something. And maybe it was, but because a, a physician had recommended that she come to us for for treatment. And she had a lot of blockages, and we were able to open up the the vessels and, and, and hopefully, you know, save her piggies and, and all that good stuff. But I thought I was kind of, it's, it's always refreshing when you have a, a physician or a caregiver who recognizes that, you know, maybe in their orbit, they're not the best person to take care of this patient. And, and, and they have so little ego that they can recommend somebody else. I mean, I, there's stuff I can't do and I send it out just because you have to do what's right for the patient. So that was a, a nice, nice save that we had. So it was refreshing. But Kim, how are you doing? Fantastic. Oh, really, really good. <laughs> I'm excited because it is peripheral artery disease awareness month and um, we're, we're putting out some, some great, interesting content. There has been debate about the treatment for people with peripheral artery disease with uh, several different devices. One in particular, an atherectomy device, which is a device that removes the plaque. And there are questions whether or not people are using it too much. Some are using it too little. And so I was able to put out um, my experiences traveling the world, watching hundreds of doctors throughout the globe using devices, um, you know, orbital, directional, laser atherectomy devices to remove the plaque. Who's doing it right? Who's doing it wrong? And offering suggestions as to how to, you know, move everybody forward in a direction that is collaborative and productive to maintaining this evolution of innovation around the treatment of peripheral artery disease, which still it it needs to keep moving at the speed of light because we don't have complete answers for some of the most complex cases because amputations, right? They're still happening. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think PD awareness month, September, this is a low estimate, but uh, probably a hundred and, 80 to 200,000 people will have a major amputation this year from PAD. There's probably about 30 million Americans that have it, over 230 million folks worldwide with PAD. But as we've talked about, less than half have symptoms and they don't die from blocked arteries in the leg. They die from heart attacks and strokes. And so we just have to, again, continue to pound the pavement. You've got a really rad um, background now with the PAD awareness. You've got the Save My Piggies logo with the Heart of Innovation. Sweet. I love it. I love it. Well, I think we should get into the conversation and find out how Rafid Fadul, the intensive care pulmonologist Oof. and co-founder of of Zividan Health. Do we have time? For, uh, do we have time for some? Uh, 
Do we have a little inspiration I real want quick? Inspiration. Yes, I was just going to say, let's finish oh, off this segment right, with good, your good, moment good, of inspiration. Good, good. <laughs> I'm going to forget Dr. you. Dr. John Thank Phillips, you. spectacular, vascular moment of inspiration. All right, so I think we have like a minute before we go to break, but this is a real quick quote. I was trying to find who is the father of peripheral arterial disease, who first described it, and it was uh, Jean-Martin Charcot, um, who back in 1850, 58 defined and described the syndrome, what we now call, he actually used the term intermittent claudication. So that's the discomfort that you get in the leg when you walk because there's a blockage. And and he's got several quotes, but I kind of like this one about symptoms. And so he says, symptoms then are in reality, nothing but a cry from suffering organs. Your leg muscles are suffering when there's blockages and that claudication, that engine in the leg is, is, is the symptoms and they're crying, crying out for help. <laughs> they are. I mean, they're being strangled, right? Yes. It's like yes. a tourniquet wrapped around your leg. And everyone knows what it's like to have a little tourniquet because when you give blood, you get a little tourniquet around your arm, correct? And if they leave that on too long, you start feeling that pressure. Well, magnifying that by about a thousand or even 10,000. And that's what these people are feeling with peripheral artery disease. It's, you know, cutting off the circulation to those organs, the muscles, the tissues, the nerves, and they're crying out for help. So that was absolutely (laughs) the best description ever, I think, hands down. And with that, I think let's go to break and let's come back and get started with our conversation with Rafid Fadul, intensive care pulmonologist and co-founder of Zivian Health to find out how his technology may help people with peripheral artery disease that are in areas that may not have specialists nearby. Stay with us. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including Cardiovascular System's Diamondback 360 Athrectomy System, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. It is Peripheral Artery Disease Awareness Month. That is September And peripheral artery disease, it's that poor circulation mainly in the leg arteries that if you leave them untreated, it can lead to heart attack, stroke and even amputation. So it's important to seek treatment right away. As I was combing LinkedIn this week in search of who was talking about peripheral artery disease awareness, I ended up stumbling upon a 
friend of mine, Stephanie Palmieri, who's an investor in Silicon Valley, and her organization had invested in a company called Zivian Health, which is creating a potential solution to the lack of access to critical specialists in what are called medical deserts, areas that are in, you know, serving some of the most vulnerable populations in rural areas, especially in the South. And they're trying to help with collaboration of skilled specialists elsewhere to bring their skills virtually even to those people, those physicians in these medical desert areas. And so I connected with Rafid Fadul. He is an intensive care pulmonologist and co-founder of Zivian Health. And I thought, what the heck? This is a great way to kick off Peripheral Artery Disease Awareness Month by bringing you on the show. Welcome, Dr. Fadul. Thanks very much. Please feel free to call me Rafid. Oh, I will. I will. Thank you. So it took, really- her, it took her like, uh, what, 18 shows to call me John. So <laughs> good, good luck. <laughs> I have the utmost respect for, for doctors for, you know, your care for patients. So I like to honor that. But thank you so much. It speaks volumes to your character to say, hey, I'm human as well. Um, and so as a human, I'm just curious, um, how did you jump from, you know, just caring for positions to saying, hey, I, I need to jump into the entrepreneurial world because we need solutions that I don't have as a doctor. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, thanks for having me again. Um, and and the, the story kind of starts uh, really when I was a resident. Um, yeah, I saw that, you know, access was an issue. I, I'm, I'm originally from the Middle East where, where healthcare access is is a, a even more um uh, disparate as, than it is here in the States. And, uh, so I, from about 2009, I started, you know, looking at different solutions that could help leverage, uh, intellectual capital in one place and, and kind of transport it to another. Right. So, uh, we leveraged some telemedicine solutions. And, uh, at that time I was working, um, with uh, some really talented and smart people, uh, much smarter than me at uh, Georgetown and, and Hopkins who were helping uh, set up a program to, to work basically in the Middle East. Um, but, you know, you don't have to go all the way across the world to find healthcare disparities, right? You just talked about healthcare deserts. And, you know, we have a tremendous amount of healthcare deserts, unfortunately, here in this country. So um, while I was, uh, you know, I, I, as you mentioned, I'm a pulmonary critical care physician. I, you know, I still see so many, uh, so many examples of totally preventable illnesses at late stages that, that come into my ICU um, that could have been uh, intervened upon much earlier and prevented from these bad outcomes. And so, um, you know, I saw this a lot. And, and again, like you'd mentioned, the healthcare deserts, over 80% of our country, all the counties in our country reside in healthcare deserts, right? And we define that as, you know, lack of pharmacy, lack of PCPs, uh, lack of hospitals and hospital beds, trauma centers, and, and, and lack of access to low cost healthcare, right? So imagine that 80% of our country, this country, the, the best country in the world, is a healthcare desert, right? That's it's staggering and, and honestly shocking. So, um, Robin, do you, sorry yeah. to interrupt. Do, do you yeah. have yeah. like specific numbers for like a desert, a healthcare desert? I mean, is it based on a certain population and, and then, yeah. you know, you're doing ratios or, or, or is exactly. that just, okay. So you yeah, have numbers. Yeah. Exactly. There's, there's access, there's access ratios that support that, but you know, it, you know, it's scary because you find some counties where, the number is zero for a lot of these, right? Like, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll share with you some in a minute, but 
you know, it doesn't matter how many people are, if zero is your access, then like, you know, the, the, you know, the story kind of tells itself, but um, anyway, so you pair, pair that scenario, right. With staffing trends that are happening in healthcare, which are, there's a, there's a multitude of reasons that these are happening, but you know, there's shortages in so many specialties of, of uh, the medical world. Right. And the number of physicians overall is, is trending downwards, not upwards, right. We're losing doctors. And, and, and this was really, this was happening pre COVID, but COVID just like stepped on the gas. Right. And I know many of my colleagues had, you know, you, whether you call it burnout or moral injury, which is the other term that I think is actually probably more appropriate. Um, you know, many of us are, are leaving healthcare altogether or they're leaving healthcare and, you know, they're reducing their, their capacity of time that they spend in it and focusing on their own you know, mental health or focusing on something else altogether. Now, and that's, and by the way, that trend is not just physicians. We, as you know, there's, there's tremendous nursing shortages that, that exists in this country. And so the only two specialties that are actually increasing significantly are nurse practitioners and physician assistants, right? They're increasing by about seven to 8% year over year, respectively. Right. So a lot yeah. with nurse practitioners is really the fact that they enjoy the education piece of it. And I think that they're the only practice that is the foundation of their practice is really about educating the patients. And so I think that that's a huge piece that I've heard from nurse practitioners that they love about that particular area of study. Yeah, you're you're 100 percent right. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm biased. You know, my wife is a is a nurse practitioner. So, uh, you know, of course, I have a, a little bit of a bias there. But, you know, generally speaking, they, you know, coming from a nursing background, it's it's very much, you know, time at the bedside, right? Time with the patient. Um, it's 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 a little bit different than the way that, you know, the most most physicians are, are their days are structured. And it's not, you know, a good or bad thing or value judgment, it's just it's just kind of the way it is. Um, but anyway, so now you see this, we have this world where you have a ton of need and you have dwindling number of physicians who can be a solution to providing, to providing that care. And, but you do have these nurse practitioners who are stepping up, right? So now you have a solution. The only problem is it's very tough to unlock because of the bureaucracy that surrounds, uh, the governance of, of some of these care providers. Right. And so, and the training is very different between a nurse practitioner, PA and a physician, right? Like John, you're, you're interventional cardiology. You did what, uh, four years of med school, three years of medicine, three years of cardiology and what, one or two year fellowship on top of that. Yeah. Two? One, yeah so one. one year, one year. So you're looking at what's that? 11 years, 11 years of training. Right. And it's, and it's intensive training, internal medicine, residency, cardiology, residency, our fellowship, I mean, those are, you know, I call it the best thing you never want to do twice. Right. (laughs) Right. Right? So, you know, and that's, uh, that's the reality of, of, of like what a medical training looks like. Uh, And you compare that to nurse practitioners and PAs. It's, it's just not the same, which is not, you know, again, it's not necessarily a value judgment. It's just, it's just structurally different. Right. right? So when you look at like half the country, they have what's called uh, collaborative physicians, right. Or supervising physician requirements, where they say, look, we want to enable these nurse practitioners, but we want them to have, you know, a physician riding shotgun just in case if there's a tough case, if there's whatever, they can talk to someone about it. And that's really what it's for. Right. And, you know, I, I often say that, like, I grew up, you know, medically grew up in, in, uh, you know, I went to, I, I trained at, uh, in Georgetown and, and Cleveland Clinic, you know, great institutions. And I'm shoulder to shoulder with nurse practitioners and PAs and they're operating honestly, as well as I was, if not better in some cases, and, and they were just very strong providers. So there isn't like there's like a huge drop off in capacity. 
certainly our training is different, but the quality in many cases is actually quite similar, right? So, um, but being able to unlock this supply of nurse practitioners is incredibly important because if you don't, if you can't uh, unlock this collaborative physician requirements and then, and then be able to navigate the, the, the state by state regulations, which are all different by the way, um, then you have these, you have that same problem of healthcare deserts, right? Which by the way, as you know, it disproportionately hits lower socioeconomic classes. It disproportionately hits African-Americans, Native Americans. And, and I'm not going to, you know, preach to the choir here. You guys obviously know like the mortality rates that, are, that come after an amputation, the five-year mortalities are much higher and, it, and more amputations disproportionately hit African-Americans and Native Americans, right? So these are examples of what happens if we don't solve this healthcare desert problem, right? And coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to find out how Zibigan Health is helping to solve this medical desert problem. So stay with us right here on 860 AM, The Answer. Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking. Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me. Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age. Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal. Yeah, it turns out we all have peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg. But that does not have to happen to you. No, it does not because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough. PAD peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are the way to my heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients, and we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our LegSaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your Life and limb could depend on it. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us on this fantastic Saturday of Labor Day. September's PAD Awareness Month, and we are having a conversation with Rafid Fadul, who is a co-founder of Zivian, the um, platform that allows patients who live in and physicians who live in so-called medical deserts to have access to folks in populated areas that can, and, and and allow them to have adequate treatment that they so desperately need. So, Rafid, tell us uh, how did how did you get this up and running? Um, give us the dirty details. We want to learn more about it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I saw this was a problem uh, and I and I, I don't think anyone has really kind of cracked this nut from my experience. I worked in a lot of like health tech companies. Um, and so you know, when I, I took some time off uh, after COVID myself and decided, OK, let me let me see if I can look at the the system as my patient now. Right. And see if I can't try to work on that. So, um I got together with a good friend of mine uh, who's uh, luckily much smarter than I am. Uh, and he had just uh, his 
he had built essentially the the audiobook engine for what's uh, for Spotify, and then he had uh, decided he wanted to leave and take on a new challenge. And uh, I managed to rope him into you know healthcare with me. And um, what we essentially developed was a platform where um, you know nurse practitioners and PAs can log on, get registered, find themselves a vetted, you know, well credentialed physician on the other end who also lives on this platform, and maintain a collaborative relationship. Where they can do quality you know, quality oversights, chart reviews, they can communicate with each other through it. Uh, they can they can document and manage all the state by state regulations and requirements, which are are notoriously difficult to it's somewhat of a labyrinth to to get through. Um, and we can also support health enterprises, right? So uh, many digital health companies are also tar- trying to target these healthcare deserts, which is amazing, right? And increasing access that way. So we support those companies as well. But that's kind of in a nutshell what what Ziv does is we we you know we support um nurse practitioners and pas and and healthcare enterprises anyone who's scaling those type of workforces and oftentimes and that's why we're kind of talking about this oftentimes they're going to places where it's very tough to staff positions right um i'll share with you one anecdote i i collaborate with um, a nurse practitioner in rural texas who got to me through you know a friend of a friend i'm licensed in texas as well this is we collaborator sure uh, and she shared with me a story about a patient she took care of. Uh, and, you know, this, it was a child. And then she was sharing the story with me about what the mother had told her that the closest physician that, that she could have seen was three hours away. And the first available appointment was in three months, right? So she would have had taken the day off of work to take her, to take her son to, to, to see this provider. And, and the, <laughs> the caveat was, if she takes a day off of work, a day off of work meant she'd lose her job. She'd lose her job. She'd lose her health care insurance. Now she can't pay for the visit that she's now trying to go take, right? So it puts her in this impossible position where you have to choose between do I get health care or do I keep my job, right? And that's that's horrible for anyone. And uh, anyhow, this, this nurse practitioner set up shop in that small town. This is in West Texas, right? Um, so she set up shop in that small town took care of this patient. You know, the kid had been getting in and out of ERs for, you know, I don't know how many months prior to this because of, you know, poorly controlled asthma. And so she took care of the child, kept the kid out of the hospital. And the mom was in tears when she was you know coming to say, thank you. It was, it just, it was, it was, it was moving for her. And it was very gratifying for me to know that I had like a very small part in that story. Um, but being able to help that, that patient was really gratifying to that nurse practitioner who was from that town. Right. She grew up there as a kid. And that's why she wanted to set up shop there. And, you what know, was like, your, what was your role in that story? Can you walk us through just one scenario with that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm pulmonary background. She was taking care of, uh, you know, an asthma patient. So, um, you know, she was she was reaching out to me about, you know, choices about medications, helping develop, you know, an action plan um, for the for the patient and the family. Um, thinking about some of the the kind of less common causes, uh, things that are not necessarily the routine things, you know, in, in um, you know, in medicine, we often say, uh, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Right. But it's important to know what those zebras are that sometimes can cause these these common uh, presentations. And so, you know, we were just discussing these these I was basically her, her resource. Right. So she would reach out to me and say, hey, I want to try this. What do you think? Uh, and I would give her some feedback and, and luckily we had a good outcome. Right. So, so you're her, you were kind of her lifeline 
in Texas. And so you needed to be like, you need to be licensed in that state to be quote in collaboration. Is that how that works? Exactly. So I was licensed in Texas already, but um, Texas has very strict requirements about what nurse practitioners have to do to maintain a collaborative relationship and to practice independently. Right. And so without having a collaborating physician, which she was, she couldn't find one for several months without finding a collaborating physician, she can't go out and, and start her practice in that small town and that person's not going to get care, right? I got to just continue with these impossible decisions of, you know, stretching my medications out. So I'm taking, you know, one puff every two days as opposed to two puffs a day, right? Just because you can't, she can't afford it, right? So um, these are the these are the challenges that you know, unfortunately, 80 percent of the counties in our country face. Um, you know, and not to pick on Texas, but that it's it's unfortunately a a good example of, of, of bad things, right? So 254 counties in Texas, 35 don't have a single doctor. 35 counties don't have a single doctor and 120, almost half have no medical specialists. Forget about, you know, interventionalists cardiologists or, or, or vascular surgeons. They don't have any specialists, 120, half the state, right? That's, it's it's staggering when you think about it, right? But it, it speaks to the fact that we have these shortages. And it's not just, I'm not picking on Texas. This is an example that I can make out of almost every single state, right? This is a problem that, that is plaguing our entire nation. So learning how we can unlock this supply of talent that's out there and support them and help them navigate some of the regulations that 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 are currently as, you know, roadblocks for them to, to you know, to practice. Um, that's really innovation. Um, I am really curious as to how, if there are so few specialists across the country and those specialists are bursting at the seams with their own patients, how they're able to stretch their time to be collaborators with other nurse practitioners and PAs in smaller towns. So we'll hear from Dr. Rafid Fadul about that and more coming up right next on The Heart of Innovation. Stay with us. If you have leg pain, leg cramps, and or diabetic neuropathy, you might have poor circulation known as peripheral artery disease, or PAD, and we can help. Hello, I'm Kim McNicholas, founder and CEO of patient advocacy organization, The Way to My Heart, with this week's medical notepad brought to you by Abbott. It's important whether you've been diagnosed with PAD or have symptoms of it and need help getting diagnosed, that you get support on your healthcare journey. The Way to My Heart PAD navigators are available by phone during the day to help answer your questions and assist in many different ways. We can help you to find a vascular specialist that meets your needs, provide education on PAD and its advanced stage known as critical limb ischemia or CLI. We can also help you to prepare for your appointments with critical questions to ask your vascular specialist, your endocrinologist, your podiatrist, primary care physician, cardiologist, and more. We can also be with you virtually or in person to help facilitate a productive and satisfying conversation with your vascular specialist, and we can even take notes for you. We also follow up with you and your select family members or friends after appointments to ensure a comprehensive understanding of diagnostic and treatment options, as well as to help you find a second opinion if desired. And we don't stop there. We 
also provide compliant support for lifestyle modifications, including smoking cessation, diet, and exercise. We also offer emotional support as PAD and CLI are chronic illnesses that not only affect you physically, but also mentally. And if needed, we can help discuss resources to help remove any financial barriers to timely, effective care, including copay relief and transportation. So don't hesitate to reach out and give the way to my heart's LegSaver hotline a call at 415-320-7138. Don't hesitate to reach out. We are always here for you. With this week's Medical Notepad, I'm Kim McNicholas, CEO of The Way to My Heart. Remember, the advice and views offered in this series are for informational purposes only. Always check with your own healthcare team before acting on any advice or information offered here. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. So, Prophet, I wanted to ask you, if I am a nurse practitioner in a small town in Ohio, and I'm having trouble finding collaboration with a physician. How do I do I just go to your website and log on or how do how do I get enrolled in, in this program? Yeah, exactly right. So you you head to our site. Um, it, it's a pretty quick intake form. Uh, it takes less than a minute for a nurse practitioner to kind of log in, say, hey, this is who I am and this is what I need. Um, and then we match we match that nurse practitioner with a physician. Um, that's, you know, in the specialty that they're, that they're looking for, uh, on average, uh, within about two days. Um, but generally with, with, with 98% accuracy within less than seven days. So how do you find these physician collaborators and, and onboard them into the system? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So, so the physicians, the onboarding process is equally easy uh, for them as it is for nurse practitioners. Uh, we use a third party for uh, primary source verification, which is, you know, the fancy way to say to make sure their credentials are all good and make sure that they're, they're solid and um, nothing crazy is going on with them, uh, which is good because you, you can trust on both sides that, you know, there's solid nurse practitioners and PAs and solid doctors all on this network. Um, but, you know, luckily we've had a lot of organic in growth, just because a lot of doctors, I think I mentioned this before, there's a lot, a lot of this moral injury, a lot of this burnout that exists. And mm-hmm. a lot of physicians who are, are scaling back actually like the idea of doing some work. Like I'll, I'll tell you just my own personal experience. I loved when I, when I'm in the hospital, I love teaching the NPs, the residents, the fellows, the, the teaching aspect of, of my medical practice is probably the, the thing I enjoy the most. And I get to do basically all that when I'm a collaborator, right? I'm, I'm going over cases with, with nurse practitioners. I'm, I'm discussing this stuff, you know, from a practical standpoint, there's less liability than if I'm doing like patient facing stuff. And, and a lot, that's a concern for a lot of physicians. Um, but, but generally speaking, it's, it's, you know, I've heard people tell me like, yeah, I fell back in love with medicine, right? Because I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about things and, and taking on challenging cases and helping people, uh, you know, remotely. So like, you know, my footprint. you know, if I'm a doctor in this rural community in Ohio, I'm only affecting that, that community and the kind of the ripple effect around that. But if I'm collaborating with other people across the country or across the state, I've extended my reach significantly. Right. And now I'm helping communities that are, are not just right in my backyard, but all over the country. 
So are you able to, so if I'm a collaborating physician, um, let, and let's now, can I, I've got a, only have a license in Ohio. Yeah. You help me get a license in, I don't know, Arizona. And then can I be a collaborating physician there? And if so, then do I, do I get, do I bill for this? Do I, how do I get reimbursed yeah. for the, that work? Yeah. So uh, a lot of good questions there. So uh, on licensing, yes, we support like the needs for licensing for both our physicians and our, our advanced practice providers. Um, and yeah, you would need to be licensed in that state to be a collaborator in that state. Uh, and we actually have a lot of physicians who are, who have come to us and said, Hey, how can I, um, how can I scale up my collaborating work? Like they want to be the collaborator more, uh, you know, instead of doing it 5% of their time, they want to do it 15, 20% of their time. And so they're getting more licenses. Um, in terms of payment, it comes typically in two different ways. Um, a lot of our, a lot of our, uh, people that would, that we support are actually enterprises, uh, and so they're getting the, 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 they're not billing for, it. they're getting paid by their enterprise to be a collaborator and to support these nurse practitioners in other communities. So they're getting paid from the companies. Um, and if, in the case of the independent providers, you know, these, these people who are kind of hanging their own shingle, um, they're, they're paying for the service. I mean, they, they see the value in having, you know, John riding shotgun as I'm taking on these tough cases and being able to, you know, send you a quick note saying, Hey, what do you think about this? Like, give me some advice. So they'll typically pay you for that service. The, the nurse practitioner or whoever's paying the nurse practitioner. Correct. Correct. Would pay me. And I imagine you can fall in love with it again because you're doing clinical. I mean, you're thinking, you're teaching, but you're not sitting in front of an EMR. You're not, uh, you know, answering calls from administrators. Right. And so you're actually just being exactly. a physician again. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, it's, it's, it's staggering to see the amount of time that, that we as physicians spend not doing patient care in a, in a clinical day. I mean, it's, I've, I've seen anywhere from you know, two and a half hours to, to five and a half hours out of a, out of a nine hour day, which is crazy to me. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's so interesting because that you, as I mentioned, going into this last you know break, that you have enough going on as a physician in your own practice, just bursting at the seams with patient after patient after patient, documentation after documentation after documentation, and then more patients, right? And then you have your own families and you have your own life, you know, outside of that, if at all. But it's interesting because you're saying that. But this is something that you is different. This is something that it almost brings you back to why you got into the practice in the first place, which is, you know, just helping people and not having that additional liability and having a little bit more freedom. And you're helping groom the next generation, because with the weight of my heart, I always get concerned when I'm tapping into John and other doctors on the side when I know they have their own patients, but I'm like, you know what? I have one of our patients. They just want a second opinion. Would you mind just jumping on the phone right now? Can I merge the calls? And mm-hmm. every single one of them are more than happy to, and they love it. And they, they tell me there's just something special about our patients that they just really enjoy being a part of their journey. So there is something to be said about what you're doing and why probably so many doctors want to get involved, even with their own busy schedules face to face with their own patients. Yeah. I mean, you heard John say without me prompting him, right? He said it's FaceTime in front of the EMR. You're spending hours in front of the computer looking through charts as opposed to talking to, you know, a human, you know, you're dealing with administration, dealing with all the other non-clinical issues 
that physicians have to face on a daily basis, it, it grinds on you, right? There's, and there's a reason that there's the, these shortages exist. And so, and you're not going to solve it with, you know, here's, here's more money or here's whatever, like that's not what's going to rejuvenate you and get, and bring your passion back. Right. I promise you no physician went into medicine, you know, four years of med school, $250,000 of debt, and then however many years of residency and fellowship making, you know, basically effectively minimum wage when you factor in the hours, no one went into this field for med- for money. I promise you that <laughs> like, we didn't come into medicine because we wanted to make a lot of money. Cause that's the exact opposite of what we, what we did for the first like 10 plus years. Everyone went into this field because they care about humans, right? They want to take care of people. And this actually allows you to kind of strip away a lot of the other stuff and just focus on that aspect of it, right? So now it kind of brings you back to like why you went into medicine in the first place, right? Being able to take care of people, being able to support other communities, it's 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 very gratifying. So I guess maybe we're selfish, right? Because it feels good, right? But it's gratifying to take care of these people. Fantastic. Well, coming up right here on The Heart of Innovation, we'll have final thoughts from Rafid Fadul and Dr. John Phillips to stay with us. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. We only have a few minutes left, and I wanted to just end the show talking about what you're doing, Rafa, and like how you may be getting that passion back in, in, in doctors to actually take care of patients. And as we were talking in the break, I, I never really thought physician burnout existed until I saw COVID and I saw, particularly in your field too, I mean, a lot of critical care docs said, see you later after COVID because it was just so stressful. But I mean, do, do you find that, do you think this is just going to kind of catch on? And, and is there, let's, let's think 10 years and in, in, uh, 10 years ahead. Do you think it's going to be made mainly APPs everywhere or PAs everywhere? And then, you know, I do my work in front of, you know, on, at, on my desk or something like that, talking and collaborating. Is that possible or too far fetched? I, I think, I mean, it's, it's going to trend that direction. I don't think it'll end up exactly kind of where the way you structured it, but certainly, I mean, if you look at the numbers, the, the APPs are growing a lot faster than doctors are right. I mean, doctors are on the negative trend. And so the reality is there is a, you know, an overwhelming need. We as a population are living longer, right? So the demand is going up, right? It's not going down. And so um, I think the APPs are, are the ones who are going to step in and help support all of our communities in terms of what our role as physicians is going to be in that. Um, I think what we'll probably see is there is going to be a, a lot of desire to kind of scale back your, your day-to-day practice. Right. And then, you know, John, instead of seeing like spending all your time and, and, you know, the inpatient setting hundred percent of your time, maybe scale it back to like 80% and that other 20%, you'll be a collaborator supporting APPs and other communities. Right. And, and in so doing, you'll still be, you know, taking on probably the toughest cases that they have, right. You'll be discussing all those cases and you know, helping honestly bestow your knowledge and your experience and the years of your practice are now going to go help other communities that, that are, you know, beyond your physical reach. And so I think that's, you know, I, like I said, in and of itself, it's very gratifying as, as a doc to like, to be able to, to kind of help support someone. And, and honestly, it's, it's humbling, right? So, you know, this nurse practitioner or the APP, they're coming to you for advice. Right. And, and that's, and, and there's a human on the other end of that, you're taking care of, you know, some patients 
And your, your answers, your words are going to impact that person's life. Right. And so, um, that's a, that's a huge responsibility and it's, it's, you know, we should all be humbled by it. Right. Like I tell people, I tell my residents at the end of, at the, end of the day, all of us are nothing more than glorified servants, right? Like we're here to serve other people. Right. And this is just one way to do it in a technically, um, in a technically supported way that kind of reaches out beyond your, your, your immediate borders. And a loaded question with only like 20 seconds left, which is, do you think it would help in terms of our current system if lawmakers would change or increase the number of available fellowships for doctors to increase um, the number of people that are have interest from outside the country that want to come to the U.S. and learn? Yeah, I, I so I'm a proponent that that, uh, you know, I, I trained with a lot of physicians who are on H-1B visas or J-1 visas. And they're brilliant, you know, they, and, you know, if they want to come practice in the States and support our communities. Great. We should let them, right. <laughs> There's no reason we should, we should block out great talent from coming here. Um, and in, in terms of, you know, expanding fellowships, I think that's a great solution. I think it's part of the solution um, and not the whole thing because I think there's a demand issue, right? There's a lot of people who don't want to become doctors. It's, it's a different specialty than it was, than it was, yeah. or different yeah, profession than it was, yeah. you know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, it's evolved. And they also want to, they want to get into specialties that are kind of eight to five. I mean, work-life exactly. balance is huge now. You see that with the residents. Uh, it's yeah. it's, yeah. it's going to be a problem and it's not going to change. Yeah, I right, basically. Go to what's your website so people can learn more and discover, you know, what their passion for health again. What's yeah, it's uh, ZivianHealth.com and Zivian is Z-I-V-I-A-N Health.com. Uh, come check it out. And, uh, you know, for any APPs, any digital health enterprises, we're, you know, and, and physicians, we're happy to support. Thank you so much, Dr. Rafid Fadul. We really appreciate all you're doing to help democratize access to healthcare, especially you're for our listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and take a stand against amputation. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. The Heart of Innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network.